you can probably treat yourself to an ad-free upgrade or at least grab an extra latte after getting a Chime checking account with features like fee-free overdraft up to $200 with SpotMe, no minimum balance requirements, and no monthly fees. Open your account in minutes at chime.com slash goals24. That's chime.com slash goals24. Chime feels like progress. Banking services and debit card provided by the Bancorp Bank N.A. or Stride Bank N.A. members FDIC. Spot me eligibility requirements and overdraft limits apply. I'm Jonathan Capehart and welcome to Capehart. One of the big knocks against Wall Street is that the world of finance and the capital it has access to are not very open to women and people of color. In the aftermath of the murder of George Floyd and the national protests his death inspired, Richard Parsons decided to build an equity pipeline. If anyone could get it done, it's Mr. Parsons. His resume reads like a blue chip registry. Chairman of Citicorp, chairman and CEO of Dime Bancorp, chairman and CEO of Time Warner, interim chairman of CBS. And he's put that expertise and experience into co-founding Equity Alliance with the stated goal, quote, to democratize access to capital. In this conversation, first recorded for Washington Post Live on March 23rd, Parsons doesn't just talk about Equity Alliance. He talks about Silicon Valley Bank, the accusations of woke capitalism, and the action taken by the federal government. The federal government stepped up and did the right thing. They learned something in 2008. Let's talk about the leadership you're engaged in now, Mr. Parsons. What exactly is Equity Alliance, and how are you measuring success? Is it just the bottom line? No, it's not just the bottom line. Let me start from the beginning and build up a little bit. Uh, The Equity Alliance was was an idea that uh, I had uh, with a friend of mine, Kenny Lear. We were sitting around in in the wake of George Floyd, um, and I was complaining about the fact that everything that, that people were reporting and complaining about with the George Floyd incident Incident, 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 excuse me. Uh, it sounded like 50 years ago when I was, you know, a college student or a law school student just coming out of school. And uh, we had all the riots in, in Detroit and New York and Philadelphia. And when the commission, the commission reported uh, on the causes of these riots. That, this is the point of the story. And you could have taken the first page out of that. And uh, and read it 50 years later with the George Floyd incident. Same issues, you know, discrimination, poor housing, lack of educational uh, quality, lack of job opportunities, unfair policing. Nothing changed in 50 years. It was just stunning to me. And when we thought about it, Kenny and I were sitting around thinking about it. You know, I said, the real problem is that in order to change things around, they need capital. And if you look at, at the way in which we allocate capital in this country, the, the asset management business, something like a 70 to $80 trillion business, trillion, less than 2% of that investment capital gets into the hands of minorities or, or women who are overlooked by our, by our, our, our structure. Uh, I say it's structurally structural inequality. I don't use racism because racism suggests there's an intentionality to it. And I don't believe that's necessarily true, but it is unequal, unequal. Uh, minorities and, and women do not get anything close to their fair share of invested capital. So we said, 
you know, we obviously aren't going to change the world by ourselves. We said, what can we do to uh, to start to level that playing field? So what the Equity Alliance is, it's a bunch of, of folks that I know and Kenny knows from the investment world who put some money together to start a fund of funds. Um, focuses on other emerging venture managers who are either people of color or women. And because we 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 believe that uh, a there's a lot of talent out being overlooked. B um, we could find that talent and create uh, an investment vehicle that gave superior returns. Because you know there's no shortage of ideas and opportunities in the overlooked communities, particularly in the minority communities. And so our objective was to uh, set out to prove that you could. As I like to say, you could find gold in them our hills. You could find real great investment opportunities, and you get a return that was superior to the returns otherwise you'd get in the market. And our further thought was that because you know, frankly, and this is a bit of a confession against interest, you know, we were the incumbents, all of us. I mean, I came from mainstream by the, by the time I got to this mainstream America, as you mentioned, I headed up a number of of, of um, um, S&P 500 companies and been involved in, 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 in commerce and investment for years, as did Ken, as did the other fellows we brought in. Uh, and so we could then go back to our former colleagues and peers and say, hey, look, guys, take a look at this model. This works. This is the way you can invest in communities you've overlooked in the past and get a decent to, to superior return. So, you know, wake up. Um, that was the point of this. You know, everybody was mm-hmm. was now woke, right, because of, of of the George Floyd situation. But they didn't know what to do. They didn't know what to do. They wanted to, they wanted to do something, but they didn't know what to do. So we thought we try and create a model for them. Sorry to go on at great length, but I wanted to give you the background. Yeah. Well, that's the great background to continue the conversation. And the commission you were you were um, thinking of was the Kerner Commission. Kerner, um, yeah, Kerner, former governor of Ohio. Right, his name just went yeah. right out of my. Now, it's quite all right. I only know it because it, that was the year I was born. So I'm, you know, I'm very mindful but of 1967. Any of our listeners, go back and read the first page, literally, of the executive session of the Kerner Report in terms of what was the root cause of this turmoil. They could think they were reading this, you know, what happened right after George Washington. Mm-hmm. 50 years have passed and nothing had changed. So let's talk more, more now that you've given us the foundation of the Equity Alliance. You made your first direct investment last summer. When you're looking at an investment, walk us through your criteria. What are you looking for? Well, we're looking for, first of all, as I said, we are, we are emphasizing managers who are either who are diverse, who are either people of color or women. So we're looking for people, uh, that, that's the first screen, if you will. And then we look to see what the background and track record, to the extent there is one, uh, is of these folks. Um, now, mm-hmm. I mentioned, I said, to the extent there is a, a track record. One of the problems that women and, and minorities have is that they don't have the track record because they haven't been able to get into the game. You know, it's like the old, I can't get a job unless I have experience, and I can't get experience unless I have a job, right? Same issue. Uh, a lot of these um, 
managers don't have the track record to put up. So you have to make a, a bet, if you will, on the quality of the leadership. So that's the second thing we look for. What's been your experience and what are your qualities as a leader? Because, you know, I always believe at the end of the day, I don't care whether you're running any kind of business, at the end of the day, it's all about the people. So we we press hard to see if uh, if we think we've got some folks who are just going to, you know, who have skills, who have intelligence, who have insight into areas of the economy we think are going to grow and mm-hmm. who we think can uh, put together a team to make it happen. Uh, and then we look to make sure that they have the fundamentals in place. In other words, you know, there are a lot of people out here who have an idea, or they have a pal, and the two of them have an idea, but they don't have any financial competence. Uh, they don't have uh, any compliance competence. They, don't, they haven't managed businesses before. We, we like to see a team because investing successfully is, generally speaking, a team effort. Put a team mm-hmm. together with different skills and competence. So we look for all all, this, all the same things that other investors look for. It's just that we recognize that the track record part of it is going to be uh, uh, skimpy. And you know, these are these are usually young people who didn't go to all the right schools. Because you know, that's it's part of it's part of the game here. That, right. You know, right. a couple of three or four schools that produce seventy five percent of the entrepreneurs, and they all go to the same schools. They have the same experience. They, they they end up in the same investment pods. Uh, and so one of, if you would ask me what's our secret sauce, we are trying to, cre- to create a community. Uh, very interesting. You look out on the West Coast, Silicon Valley, there's a community of folks out there that meet and greet, talk to each other and support each other. They all, as I said, they all went to the same schools and they all, you know, they live the same kind of lives. Our folks mm-hmm. don't. Our folks are not part of that community. So we're trying to build a community among this group that we're putting together so that they right. get the same kinds of support. Well, Mr. President, talk a little bit more about that, because about why it's important um, seeing people who look like you sitting around and at the head of the table, why that is so important. Well, I'll start with a, an anecdote. The advice that was once given to me by an early employer. He said, you know, success in life is uh, 10% what you know, 10% who you know, and 80% luck. Just circumstances of your birth, your parentage, the schooling, all that. Things you had less to do with than actually getting out into the workday world and trying to make a go of it. The important part to me was the who you know was just as important as the what you know. Um, what happens in the real world is that relationships count for a ton. You know, because I'm sure that as you look back on your impressive career, there've been a lot of relationships that that helped you make it way up the ladder as you've done. People who you met along the way, circumstances where you you came into into the view of those who could help you. Um, So you see a lot of that in fact, interesting, I know one of the things we're going to talk about in a minute is like this Silicon Valley um, situation. Oh, yeah. That was, to some extent, a function of the network, right? Silicon mm-hmm. Valley leaned heavily. This is a, this is the net downside of it. It leaned heavily into the, the startup community, 
venture capital community. And as soon as uh, one got word that, uh, oh, things weren't going so well, the word spread within that community and bang, they were out of business, right? Well, that works in a positive way when you're trying to raise funds to, uh, to start a business. And uh, it works in the following way. Someone you know um, and who has confidence in you reaches out to his or her or its network of other investors and said, hey, I know this guy, I know this gal, I know this group, um, I'm putting some of my money up and I think you should as well. And that's how, that's how the, if you will, the game is played. Mm-hmm. That's not a game that's been available, frankly, to, uh, to minorities or to women if they didn't have those kind of relationships. So part of what we're doing is creating a community that enables them to play the same game. Um, and this is why it's been important that, that uh, investors, we can let them lean on our networks. We can introduce them um, to folks who can fund and to themselves to just give you a sense of confidence that I, you know, if these folks can make it, I can make it. Since you brought it up, let's keep talking about it. By, by it, I mean Silicon, Silicon Valley Bank. It's interesting because ESG, or Environmental, Social, and Governance, and Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion, or DEI, um, those initiatives have become punching bags. Um, and we saw this most recently with some of the some on the right blaming the collapse of Silicon Valley Bank uh, on ESG. Yeah. Of the two people on this screen, you're the only one who has not only run a bank, <laughs> you've run three banks, if memory serves. Does, does that even make any sense? No, is the short answer. I'm giving you a bunch of long answers. I give you a short one there. No, it, it, this has very little to do with uh, ESG. It had to do with, you know, first of all, no bank, right? No bank can really withstand a run. You know, the nature of banking is such that you take in money short, meaning you have to give it back whenever somebody shows up for it, and you lend it long. Now, uh, Silicon Valley Bank made lots of loans in the uh, startup space, and they also invested in, in some treasuries that were, at the time, when interest rates were really low, looked very attractive. Well, two things happened. One, interest rates spiked, and so the treasuries they invested in lost value big time, and two, uh, a lot of the, the, the venture loans they made were very long. I mean, you couldn't just call the guy up and say, I need my money back because my, my depositors are here. Back in the day, if you wanted to run on the bank, you had to literally show up at the bank to get your money, right? right. Today, today, so that would take, you know, that takes weeks. Today, it happens in a matter of hours, as we saw on Faithful Friday, that the Silicon Valley just ran out of dough. But it doesn't have anything to do with ESG or mm-hmm. DEI. You know, some of the crazy things that, that some of our culture workers here have asserted. Right. They're right. mistaken. So, you know, uh, Mr. Parsons, you, you talked about some of the factors that led to the, the, the collapse of SVP. Yesterday, the, the Federal Reserve raised interest rates by 25 basis points or a quarter of a percent which leads uh, us to a question from the audience. This is a question from Aaron Coral from Arizona. Can you share your thoughts on how higher interest rates affect capital allocation 
to smaller minority-owned businesses? Yeah, um, this is, I'll start with, with referring back to what I call the structural inequity, right? Mm -hmm. uh, you know, this expression when I was in the service, X flows downhill, I clean that up for you. Uh, meaning that <laughs> but at, the, at the bottom of the food chain always sort of get hit the hardest. What, what the, particularly the SVP and Silvergate Bank and the other one that went down, what that has done is it, it's it's created um, a constraint. Let's put it that way: that banks feel to tighten their lending, right? So it's going to result, no question about it, in tighter tighter lending, and you know the fact that money now costs more is also going to create a uh, a strain on the lending. You know, used to be. I can remember saying to people two years ago, money was free almost. I mean, it's right. so cheap. Now it ain't free anymore. And is that going to hurt uh, minority entrepreneurs? Yes, it is. Because it's going to hurt anybody trying to build a business. And that's where most of them are in the, uh, in, in the, in the life cycle now. They're trying to build. They need capital to build. That's the whole point behind the equity alliance. You know, you've got to get capital into people's hands for them to build something. And so I expect to see uh, more stringent lending requirements by the banks, and it's going to, you know, like seemingly all things, it's going to impact on the minority and uh, and and women community. I think of entrepreneurs more um, painfully than on mainstream um, business enterprises. Now, mm -hmm. is it going to cut it out altogether? No, but it's just going to be harder. So. Um What's happened with Silicon Valley Bank and Signature and Credit Suisse ha has me and a lot of other people thinking back to 2008. Um, where do you see this banking crisis going? How does it compare to what we went through? What happened in 2008? Good question. Um, frankly, uh, I think that because of the fact that the federal government stepped up and did the right thing, they learned something. 2008. They did the right thing, which was to sort of backstop all the deposits and say, we're not going to, not going to let this uh, system, this banking system melt down because people are afraid they're not going to get their money back. Uh, I think they nipped it in the bud. I really do. I think this is more akin. Now, this is going to go back to if you were born in the 70s, you were just high school or college kid when we had something called long-term capital in 19... 98, which one of the big you know, investment funds broke up and the Fed stepped in and nipped it in the bud. And there was some concern for, I don't know, a week or two, what does this mean and how is this going to play out? Uh, but then ultimately the market settled down and they realized that the government was not going to uh, let this become a contagion type of situation. 2008 was total collapse of the system. And it took it took a while for the government to really sort of figure out that we need we need to inject capital into the system to stabilize it and to restore trust. I said earlier, no banking system can exist for long unless there's trust in it. This time, they hit the mark. You know, the following Monday after the collapse on Friday, and said we're not going to have the trust drain out of the system. We're going to support the depositors, the bank's depositors, and we're going to make sure that none of them lose any of their money. 
And so they nipped it in the bud, I think, what could have been a real disaster. What do you say to those who say um, that the fact that the federal government did step in and, you know, made those depositors whole, that they're setting up a moral hazard where banks can just basically say, well, we can take all the risks we want because the federal government's just going to step in if we get into trouble. No, I don't think that's going to happen because what they're going to do, you watch and see, they're going to go back and revisit some of the regulatory uh, uh, requirements that were eased in 2018. That's the purpose of regulation, to make sure that the banks aren't being irresponsible. Moreover, um, the people who put the money up for the bank, the investors, and some of the, some of the uh, lenders who are outside the, the scope of deposits are going to lose money, well, particularly the investors, and the management is going to have to be held accountable. But uh, it, it's, in, it's in our national interest. It's actually in the government and the people's interest to defend and protect the depositors because you have to, you know, that's what a banking system does. And I've seen some of the things written by, you know, our favorite senator from Massachusetts and others, you know, who want blood, right? We, we, there's always a pitchfork crowd that shows up. Um, but I will tell you, I don't think any of uh, any of uh, problems that have been dealt with with uh, SVP or the other banks you mentioned are going to cost the taxpayer money because there are more than enough assets there. This we learned in the dime. And we learned in city. There are more than enough assets there to cover those liabilities if you give it time. That's the thing. And doesn't give it time. You have to give it time to unwind these things. Okay. Well, I mean, if you if Dick Parsons is is confident in the banking system, I have no right not to be. <laughs> no right not to be. Um, Mr. Parsons, today there are only six Fortune 500 companies run by black CEOs, which is more. It's actually a record high, more than when you were a um, a, a CEO. What's preventing greater greater racial representation at the top of corporate America? Well, I, I think it's it's akin to what I called earlier the structural inequalities. I mean, who who sits on the boards? Boards are the ones that determine, you know, who's going to be CEO. And I, I can tell you um, from my experience, uh, whenever I was involved either in a search or looking for somebody, and and to find somebody of color, um, people would actually say to me, "Well, you know, I don't, you know, I don't know anybody. I don't know where they are." And I would say, "Well, you know, you're not going to find them at your club, right? You're not going to find them <laughs> in your church. You're not going to find them living next door. You, you have to reach out, uh, and that's that's just something we need to uh, keep harping on the, the reach out part. There will be more, at least. Now, I made this prediction." 20 years ago when I was a CEO, that there would be many more uh, Blacks and, and, and indeed women. But uh, as long as, as we tend to live separately, again, separate nations, as long as we live separately and as long as corporate boards in particular are white men, um, women are starting to come on board, but white men, it's a struggle because we, we don't live together. And therefore, we don't have familiarity with each other. And until the complexion of corporate America at the board level changes more, you're not going to see 
that much change in the CEO job. But the complexion of corporate America, it, it is changing. There are more, uh, more minorities and particularly more women. Uh, and so I have hope. It's just a slow moving, slow moving process. Needs to speed up. Richard Parsons, chairman of Equity Alliance. It is, like I said at the beginning of this conversation, a joy to see you. Thank you so much for coming to Washington Post Live. Oh, it's been my pleasure. It's nice to see you too. Thanks for listening to K-Part. It's edited by Nick Roberts. We'll have new episodes for you every Thursday. I'm Jonathan Capehart. You can find me on Twitter at CapehartJ. Spring is in full bloom. Are your finances? With the Chime Secured Credit Builder Visa Credit Card, you can build credit with everyday purchases and regular on-time payments, all with no annual fees or interest. With Chime's Secure Credit Card, you can start improving your credit scores right away. Get started today at Chime.com build. That's Chime.com build. Chime feels like progress. The Chime Credit Builder Visa Credit Card is issued by the Bancorp Bank N.A. or Stride Bank N.A. members FDIC. Out-of-network ATM withdrawal and OTC advance fees may apply. Terms and conditions apply. Go to Chime.com disclosures for details.